0: Our scripture reading this morning comes to us from the ninth chapter of Luke, verses 51 through 62. Now, I actually planned to uh, do 57 through 62 this morning. And and I wanted to start a series on uh, being on the road with Jesus and... uh, and sort of uh, lessons from the rogue, and and we'll start that series next week. But as I start to uh, study the verse I thought I was going to preach, um, the one right before it caught my eye. First, because it was so startling, and, uh, and, and so I just had to sort of get to the bottom of it. And as I did, it just spoke to me so much that I thought, no, we've got to stop and, and and we've got to read this one first and and uh, and, and talk about this one and then uh, we'll get to the next one next week. And so um, this is a bit of a change of plans, but I think you'll see what I mean by by startling first and then um, and then it's got something really profound to say to us next. So um, Luke, the ninth chapter, verses fifty one through sixty two. Hear now the word of our Lord. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him. On their way they entered a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him. But they did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. When his disciples James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went to another village. This is the word of God. May it find its way into our hearts and lives this morning, by the power of his Holy Spirit. Amen. So, this passage right here marks a turning point in the Gospel of Luke. For the first half of Luke's Gospel, Jesus has been um, hanging out by the Sea of Galilee um, in in the regions all along the Sea of Galilee Galilee, because um, this is sort of where he has his home court advantage. Um, these are his people um, that he knows really well. These people are um, will protect him and sort of defend him. They don't um, they don't like those people down in the south. And so, if Herod were to send anyone, any soldiers or or any Pharisees, we're going to show up to try and uh, try and. Um, uh, talk trash to Jesus, these people would bolster him up and, and, uh, and, and defend him. And so this was a great place for him to start his ministry. Well, this morning marks a turning point because we're told that he sets his face toward Jerusalem. Uh, some translations say he, he set his face like flint toward Jerusalem. See, he knows his destiny is waiting for him in Jerusalem. And now he's done just about everything he can do around the Sea of Galilee. He's gathered these disciples, he's trained them, he's poured into them, and he's ready to start the march down south to see what awaits him. And the whole rest of the Gospel of Luke is sort of a, a Jesus making his way slowly toward Jerusalem uh, and, and having all of these encounters with people on the road. And we'll get to that next week. But this morning, as he, uh, as he begins to, uh, to make his journey, he decides he wants to go through Samaria. Now... Um, To to get from Galilee to Jerusalem, the most direct route goes through Samaria. There's only one problem. The Samaritans and the Jews do not get along at all. You know, it has to do with religion. Um, The Samaritans only uh, recognize as inspired the first five books of the Bible— um, while uh, the Judeans recognized all of what we would call the Old Testament. Um, the, the Samaritans worshipped God on a, on a different mountain that was located in their region instead of at uh, Mount Zion in Jerusalem. But it was also, it was also historical. The Samaria was the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel after the civil war. And Jerusalem was the capital of the southern kingdom of Judah. There's an ancient north south divide that goes back to a civil war. Are you hearing me? But it's not just historical, it's also political. It's rooting in the current politics of the day. Because the, uh, the people in Samaria really resented um, uh, the people in Jerusalem, how cozy they were with the Roman establishment. And every time the Samaritans had to pay a tax that they felt like was unfair, they sort of secretly blamed the Judeans for allowing it to happen. And it was also racial. Because when the, uh, when the Judeans were exiled in Babylon, the Samaritans were left behind. And in order to survive, they had to intermarry with their neighbors. And uh, when the Judeans came back from exile, they considered the Samaritans not to be true Jews anymore because their blood was mixed So all of these ancient grudges are at work here. And as a result, whenever people from the north were passing through Samaria to uh, go uh, on pilgrimage in Jerusalem, the Samaritans had a habit of being less than hospitable, of offering a less than stellar welcome. Uh, They would often refuse to uh, put them up in their ends. Uh, Sometimes they would insult them and throw rocks at them. And so a lot of people wound up, instead of going the most direct route, just kind of taking the long way around on the other side of the Jordan River, putting days on their journey just so they didn't have to run into some Samaritans. So Jesus is now determined to go to Jerusalem. And he doesn't want to take the long way around. He wants to get there as soon as he can get there. And so he sends some of his disciples ahead to sort of test the waters. Are the Samaritans going to be receptive to him? And the disciples come back and report, yeah, no. Uh, These people are not fans of you over there. And what's worse is because you are so set on Jerusalem, um, you know, they see you're fans You're facing away from their holy mountain and going towards the other people's holy mountain. They don't want to have anything to do with you. They might throw rocks at us if we go down there. So Jesus, after some careful consideration, decides, well, we'll just take the long way around. But not after James and John offer an alternative solution. They say, Master, hear me out on this. What if instead of taking the long way around, adding several days to our journey, um, going through some villages we weren't planning on going through, what if instead of doing that, well, we simply just called down fire from heaven and uh, and, and, and killed all the Samaritans in a massive blaze? What if we did that? What if we just nuked them off the map? Now, we're told Jesus turned and rebuked them. Now, remember, a a rebuke is not a sternly worded to whom it may concern, right? A rebuke is the thing you do when you get up uh, in in someone possessed by a demon's face and to command the demon to leave, right? There's a lot of shouting and red-facedness involved, right? And and Jesus is rebuking these disciples and, and and. We don't have his words, but I imagine there's something like this. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? For a year, I have been training you up and teaching you the the, the way we're supposed to be. You're my disciples. You've heard me say every day, turn the other cheek. Walk the extra mile. Love your enemies. Pray for those that persecute you. Now, at the first sign of opposition, your plan is let's nuke them off the map? Have you not heard a word I've been saying? Where did you even get this idea? Well, it turns out they got this idea, and this is kind of embarrassing, from the Bible. He got this idea from the Bible. See, there's a story in 2 Kings about the prophet Elijah. Now this comes towards the end of the prophet Elijah's ministry. And in fact, um, uh, the, uh, uh, 2 Kings uses the same phrase that um, that Luke does at the beginning of this passage. When it was time for Elijah to be taken up into heaven. That's what what... Uh, what, what what Luke says about Jesus. In the days before Jesus was taken up into heaven, this happened. And so Luke is trying to get us to have Elijah on the brain here. And, and so this story about Elijah, his last uh, major thing before he's taking up into that chariot of fire into heaven, um, has to do with King Ahaziah. Now King Ahaziah is the successor to King Ahaz. And um, and, and, and King Ahaz was um, Elijah's main foe throughout his whole ministry. See, uh, Elijah was trying to turn the people back to worshiping the Lord, and King Ahaz and his wife Jezebel worshipped the storm god Baal of the Canaanites. And it was this uh, constant conflict between the worshippers of Baal and the worshippers of the Lord that defined Elijah's ministry. Well, at the end, he finally wins. There's a coup in Israel; um, Ahaz is overthrown. Um, maybe you remember Jezebel uh, falls out her window, and um, and all the altars uh, to Baal in Israel are destroyed. Elijah wins. Now, the very next thing that happens, King Ahaziah, Ahaz's son, falls out of his window. He's on the second story of his palace one day, and he just falls out of his window, just like his mother. And also, just like his mother, he doesn't ask the Lord for help, he calls on Baal. And so, uh, so King Ahaziah, um, because there are no altars uh, to Baal in Israel anymore, uh, wants to find out what's going to happen to him. He's bedridden. He's probably got some internal bleeding. And he's probably wondering, um, am, am I going to ever get up off this bed again in rural? And so he, sent, he sends some of his men um, to uh, to go to a foreign country and, and go to one of the holy sites there and inquire of the god Baal. Well, Elijah gets word of this, and he is not happy. And so those, uh, those men never make it out to a foreign country. Um, Elijah meets them in the middle of the road, and he says, Is it because there's no God in Israel that you're going out there to talk to the god Baal? You turn around and go tell your king that because he's done this he will not leave his bed, he will die there. So they do what Elijah says. And they deliver this message to the king, and the king is not happy to hear this. And so what King Ahaziah does is send fifty of his of his armed soldiers to go retrieve Elijah. Um, maybe, uh, maybe to, to bring him to the palace, to force him to take back the prophecy, he said, because people used to think prophecy worked that way, that you could just gig a do-over and say something different. Or maybe just to throw him straight to the dungeon. We don't know, but they send the soldiers out to go get Elijah. And Elijah meets these soldiers in the rogue, and they're like, come down from that mountain, come with us. And Elijah says... If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume these men. And no sooner does he say that than fire comes down from heaven and burns all 50 men to a crisp. This is in the Bible. Don't see it acting out with vegetables and cartoons, but it's in the Bible. Um, So (laughs) burns the men to a crisp. And so what King Ahaziah decides to do in response to this is send 50 more men. And they come out, and the same thing. Elijah says, if I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume these 50 people. (laughs) Burn to a crisp. And because Ahaziah is a slow learner, after this he decides to do something different. No, he does the same thing. He sends 50 more men. And Elijah meets them in the road, but this time the captain of the 50 men gets down on his knees and says, he sent us, we had to come, please have mercy on us. And Elijah turns them right around back without burning them into a crisp and has them delivered a message. Because you have done this, you will not get up from your bed. That's a weird story, right? Like, probably getting... It doesn't wind up in a lot of children's Bibles. It's a weird story. Maybe you didn't grow up with it the way you grew up with David and Goliath, but the disciples did. They knew that story. And that story, like, that's, they've got that on the brain because that's how God deals with unruly Samaritans who mistreat the prophets. All these people were Samaritans, by the way. King Ahaziah, uh, his palace was in Samaria, the capital of Israel, right? This is how the Bible says, this is the Bible way, right? This is how God deals with Samaritans who reject the prophet. And so when they say, Jesus, why don't we call down fire and consume them? They've got the Bible on the brain, Let's do this the Bible way, Jesus. Let's call down fire. Let's not take the long way. After all, Jesus is a lot like Elijah. Especially in the Gospel of Luke, you see that Jesus and Elijah perform many of the same miracles. Jesus has a concern for widows the way that Elijah had a concern for widows. Jesus um, uh, could raise the dead the way Elijah could raise the dead. And a lot of people drew this connection. Re- remember that moment when Jesus is looking at his disciples and he says, who do the people say that I am? The first name they mentioned, some people say, you're Elijah. This is one of those rumors that was going on about Jesus. Jesus was Elijah. After all, there was a prophecy that before the Messiah came, Elijah was going to come first and herald his coming. And Jesus talked an awful lot about a Messiah. He talked an awful lot about a kingdom that's coming, an awful lot about the Son of Man. Maybe Jesus is Elijah. So close, right? So close. But there's one big difference between Jesus and... And Elijah. Jesus never used the power of God to punish anybody. See, Elijah, you got stories of, of Elijah calling down fire on people. Um, there's a story of, of Elisha. Um, uh, the, the teenagers are, are mocking his bald hag, and he just calls some bears out of the forest to maul them. Respect your elders. That's what that story means. But Jesus never does anything like that, right? Jesus doesn't use his power to punish. He uses his power to forgive and to heal. Jesus, when faced with the choice of burning a hole through his enemies to get straight to his destination, takes the long way around every time. See, we're told that the time had come for Jesus to be taken up into heaven. It's a strange phrase, right? But unlike Elijah, Jesus doesn't get to take the shortcut. Elijah doesn't have to experience death. Elijah gets gets picked up by that by that uh, by that great Uber in the sky, the chariot of fire, and, and it takes him up straight into heaven without ever having to experience the coldness of the grave. But Jesus doesn't take the shortcut. Jesus goes through the cross, goes to the grave. That's the gospel. Right, Every time Jesus is offered the shortcut, the shortcut to glory, he chooses the long way around. Remember the story of the temptation. Jesus is just beginning his ministry, and and Satan takes him up uh, to, to the highest point in all of Israel, and he shows him all the kingdoms of the world. He says, all of this can be yours if you just worship me. Just once. Compromise just this little bit. One quick genuflect. It'll all be yours. After all, isn't that the goal? Every knee shall bow, every tongue confess to the glory of God the Father that Christ is Lord. Isn't that where we're trying to end up anyway? Here's the shortcut, Jesus. You can have this right now. You can skip the whole messy cross stuff. And you can go straight to glory right now. And in the wilderness, Jesus refuses the shortcut and decides to take the long way around. There's a story in the sixth chapter of John. Uh, J- Jesus has just got done dividing the fishes and the loaves, feeding the 5,000. And the people there want to make him king right there. They realize that he's a great prophet. And it says they try to make him king by force. I don't know what that looks like, whether they're like jamming a crown on his head or what. But they try to make him king by force. And Jesus refuses. He refuses to take the shortcut, to take that shortcut to glory, to to jumpstart the whole every knee shall bow thing. Because he knows he's got to go through the cross to get there. That's good news for us. Because the shortcut to glory doesn't go through our neighborhood. The shortcut to heaven doesn't go by our house. In order to take us with him, he had to go through the cross. He had to go the long way around. even in the garden. He's praying, Lord, if there's any other way, just let this cup pass from me. Just, just, can we start the glory now? But there's no other way. So he has to endure to being beaten, to being spat on, to being mocked and ridiculed. He has to be crucified for us. He takes the long way. I don't know about you, but I'm thankful. I'm thankful. You know, sometimes we wish Jesus were an Elijah. We'd like Jesus to be an Elijah. Just come down here right now, call down fire on our enemies and let that be that. Let's get the party started right now. Let's get the glory started right now. Just uh, those people that don't agree with us, let's just nuke them off the map. And let's start the kingdom right here, right now. But for whatever reason, Jesus is taking the long way around. For whatever reason, Jesus is taking the long way around. And that's good news for us, because as much as we would like an Elijah, we need a Jesus. I don't know about you, but I'm thankful that when I did the worst thing I ever did, the fire didn't come down from heaven and consume me. I'm thankful Jesus took the long way around with me. I was 16 years old, sitting in a pew in a Baptist church. And and, and that pastor uh, 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 leading that revival said, if there's anyone here who's called to preach, come up. 16 years old, uh, me and my buddy Travis, we came up forward to the altar and we accepted that call to preach. The next day he was looking up seminaries. And, and he graduated, went straight to Bible college, then went to seminary after that, became a pastor. I took the long way around. This is my first church. I was 33 when I started. It took me a little while, but I am so glad Jesus was patient with me. I am so glad Jesus waged on me. You know, we like Elijah, but we need a Jesus to take the long way around with us. So, it's time to set our faces like Flint on Jerusalem. It is time to be about God's kingdom work here on earth. It is time to to throw away all the distractions and be all about what Jesus is doing here in Rhyner, Virginia. We need to have a, a singular focus. But we don't need to be so focused and in such a hurry that we're unwilling to be patient with other people that we're unwilling to take the scenic route when we need to. That we're unwilling to, to wait for God's forgiveness and grace in a situation that needs forgiveness and grace. Yes, our faces need to be set like flint. We need to be determined to do what God is calling us to do. But we also need to be compassionate and merciful with our neighbors. Because we are not called to call down fire. We are called to call down forgiveness. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.